Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined by Brian Gottlieb. And this podcast is brought to you by Champions of Kamigawa, Unemployment, Mountain Dew Spark, and My Space Eater. Mountain Dew Spark Zero is a revelation, honestly. Dude, in the, okay. In the world of diet soda, it is it is something special. Okay, so we we hadn't talked about this. I was just going to spring this on the podcast. I'm I'm excited that you have tried this. This oh, is great. Oh, I've tried it. Yes, I, I've tried the Spark Zero. Now, I prefer to have my diet soda in bottle form usually. Spark Zero does not appear to exist in bottle form, at least by me. It I does. Know it does. does. Okay. So it is a very regional. I, I know that's weird, but like one of the most exciting things when I – moved to Las Vegas in 2008 was that they had diet Mountain Dew Code Red again, which oh. just doesn't exist around here. And I, I'm sure there's probably a listener listening right now who has access to diet Mountain Dew Code Red. You don't know how good you have it because I just can't get that soda. But Spark by Me, only available in cans, not my favorite way to consume a diet soda. But th- this is this is a top tier soda. Like I'm talking – on OG Diet Mountain Dew level, for sure. So do you like raspberry lemonade in general? Because yeah. that's basically what this is. I, I do. I mean, who doesn't like raspberry lemonade? It's delicious. I, I don't drink it ever because it's full of sugar. And I have chosen to, instead of dying by sugar, I will die by fake sugar, which yeah. will surely give me cancer at some point later on in life. And I'm, I'm not really looking forward to that. But, you know, we all make choices. And that's where I've cast my lot. It's nice to have that flavor again in a form that has no calories. Every three months or so, I'll get the Simply Lemonade, you know, raspberry lemonade thing. Mm. And you, yeah, you can you can taste the sugar like killing you yes. as you drink it. But it's worth it because it's so delicious. But delicious. now, no question. Now there's Mountain Dew Spark, which I didn't know about. A buddy of mine just like handed me a bottle and I was like, OK, I don't know. I don't know what this is like. Normally he had voodoo and like every time I would go over there, like, you know, once a month or whatever, would have a voodoo tasted like gummy worms. And was just like I could not drink more than like one can of this a day. Mm-hmm. And then the spark, I was just like, oh, this is really good. Yeah, really good soda. So anyway, he, he got a bottle uh, of regular and zero. I took the regular. He took the zero and he said the zero was real bad. And I was like, well, mine's great. So I don't know. I think the zero is fantastic, but diet soda is one of those things where you have to certainly build up a taste for it. Otherwise, it tastes very bad. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like Coke Zero is is fine. Cherry Coke Zero is like pretty good. Mm-hmm. And anything that was like Diet Coke, Diet Mountain Dew, I was just like, this is not drinkable. It's hard. Disagree, Any- but I understand where you're coming from. Well, that, that's because you're there already, man. It's not right. like, you know, your first Diet Mountain Dew is probably not delicious to you. Yeah, unless- and it's, it's like if I were to smoke a cigarette right now, it would probably – kill me like I, I there's no way i could bear that but you just like build up this tolerance to these horrible things which are certainly killing you which i would include diet mountain dew in and then it, it becomes fine at some point well i mean if you if you bring up cigarettes i'm gonna have to talk about it uh, that's fine you can talk about whatever you want it's your podcast i don't know when the last time i had a cigarette is that's fan- that's fantastic news yes and no i've been i've been vaping instead so okay. Likely better. Obviously, the jury is still out on this. Who knows? It could be better for me in some ways, worse for me in other ways. I'll figure that out at some point down the line. I know that my breath is probably not as bad as it used to be, and I also don't smell as bad as I used to. So those are both positives that I I think are relevant, even if I don't really see anyone ever. But it, it has been months at this point, and I remember... 
basically like I was weaning myself off of cigarettes and more onto the vapes. Right. So it would be like, I went from having like almost a pack a day to like 10 to like five to whatever. And then it was just like, I'll like wake up in the morning, have one, and then I'll just vape for the rest. Right. And then eventually that became zero. And that has worked for me. There was a period where I think I smoked a cigarette, like maybe a month after I had stopped for a while. And I was just like, what? This tastes so bad. That's what happens. You tr- you try and go back to it. It does not work. Yeah. I just, I couldn't believe it. And I mean, if anything that like helped me stay on the the straight and narrow for vaping and sure. Know, eventually I'll, I'll want to like quit vaping too. But that's what know. I was going to ask. Is this in, in an effort to like eventually eliminate all this stuff? From it would, it would be nice. It would be nice. I've, I've like tried quitting smoking before when I didn't really want to. So obviously like that didn't really work out because it was like mm-hmm. anytime I would get slightly tilted or whatever, my brain is just like, you know, go, go have a cigarette. You, you deserve it. You want it real bad. And I was like, yeah, I do want it. You're you right, know? brain. Good advice. Yeah. So now I'm, I'm more of in a place where like, you know, maybe I could just get rid of it altogether. And you know, when you have those sort of cravings, then maybe you're just like, ah, actually, no, I don't, I don't really. So we'll see. I I would certainly like to phase it out at some point, but, you know, it does help with like stress and anxiety to some degree. And I'm still in a very like stressful and anxious place. So speaking of, that's a very nice transition to the the next topics we want to get into. Unemployment, baby. Yeah, no, no more, no more work for us. Hell hell of a run, especially on your part, just a, a real, real long run with any, any one entity, anyone employer, it's, it's something to be impressed with. And, uh, you've, you've certainly benefited the magic community a lot with all the work you've put out there. I started writing for Star City in 2008. There were, I think two different breaks where I switched to writing for CFB and then eventually came back. And then there was the break when I went to work for wizards. So it wasn't like 14 years continuous, but it, it was at least a decade of work for sure. And that's mostly writing every week. Occasionally I would write uh, multiple times a week. I was doing like the daily digest type of stuff. Uh, there was like the, what we'd play stuff. I was doing videos. So like I definitely averaged more than one piece of content per week for yeah. over 10 years. Wild, just unfathomable numbers. And you know, I, I was doing my own look back a couple of weeks ago and found that I had been pushing like five years now. And that seemed unfathomable to me. It, yeah. It's just like so. And if I think about it in terms of like the other jobs I've done, I did this for longer than I was a lawyer, I guess. And so I'm more of a magic writer than I am a lawyer. I, that doesn't count, you know, law school, school time. Yeah. yeah. But but still, it's been a huge part of my life. And it is disappointing the way it is all ending. And it's not even so much my disappointment is about my own circumstances because I, I did enjoy it. But I'm going to get to do this again. Don't don't worry. There will be a place for me to write. I still have this vehicle to share my ideas and I'm already working on ways to get stuff out there. So uh, I don't want people to fear that they'll never hear from me again. But it just was like this, uh, this fixture. Like it, it's so much of what magic has meant to me in my time with the game. I, I've had Star City Premium forever. The only reason I didn't have it is because I got it for free when I started working there. But in, from 2000, whenever, probably when it was first offered to the present date, I ran a Star City premium subscription. That website brought so much information, so many people really into my life. You know, it's where I got to know you. I, I knew you through your writing before I knew you. Uh, and I can say that about a lot of my friends now. So it really 
jarring thing to lose from this community that we spent so long building up, you know? I guess you were in magic school longer than law school. I'm sure law, true. I'm sure law school took up way more total hours of your time, but you know. Uh, I, those early moto days, I, eh, I don't know. Yeah. They, they took a lot of time. No, that's true. Anyway, I, I guess I should probably talk about like what we're talking about for the folks who are smart and are not on Twitter or don't no, check Star City because who cares? But uh, Star City... Uh, what's the right term? Like laid off, I guess. Like they're they're basically well, like we weren't we weren't employees. We were all independent contractors. I know, but so, you know what I mean. Uh, we were told that work was no longer needed. Yeah. So SCG is changing the way that they do content, which you know most of it is basically just like they're getting rid of it. They're keeping like some commander stuff, some limited stuff. I don't know everyone who they're keeping, but basically if. You were like me and we're trying to write about like the best deck every week or whatever. You probably got the X. So SCG moving in a different direction. And that means that there's no real need for us. And in the case of some of us, we were paid like a lot of money. So that frees up a bunch of money for them to do other stuff potentially. So I don't know. Well, we'll see what happens with them. But for now, Brian and I have uh, no place to write our content and get paid for it. Strange situation, but one that I think will eventually yield opportunity. And if you have ever enjoyed the more unhinged side of my writing and things that maybe didn't fit with the typical mold of magic writing, I'm going to tell you it's going to be a lot easier for me to do stuff like that. All bets are off now. All bets are off. And some of the projects I've wanted to do for a long time. I mean, working for Star City, we... We had a lot of freedom, I would say, but yeah. ultimately we were uh, we were there for a reason. We were there to inform. We were there to get people ready for tournaments that Star City were, was running. We were there to sell magic cards, and you know that that last part was never really an express directive. And if you've read my writing over the last few months, a lot of it is like, "Don't buy magic cards. This is really stupid." So I. They never really pushed that agenda on us, but it's certainly the purpose of the website, right? That's what they're there for is to run their business. And if nothing else, getting you to click on my stuff was in service of selling magic cards. Even if I said, don't buy these magic cards in the words I was writing, but no real direction anymore. We can we can go wherever we want. And I'm sort of excited for that opportunity. It's it's going to be interesting, but I I did enjoy the stuff that I got to write. I would say, you know, like eight out of, 10 articles mm-hmm. where it was just like this, this does not feel like a chore. And then some weeks it was harder than others. So I am, I'm kind of concerned with looking sort of like at the market and what type of content people want to consume the most and trying to balance that with like the type of content that I want to make. And uh, I'll probably end up doing a little bit of both, honestly. Mm-hmm. No, it's good. A little bit more balance. And I, I think I'll say this too, is like, obviously Nobody likes to lose their job. It, I'm I'm not pleased about what has happened, but ultimately my time with Star City was good. I, I enjoyed good. I enjoyed what I did. I enjoyed all the opportunities I was given. I was always treated fairly. I was I was given most of the flexibility that I needed. So I, I really don't have much bad to say about them. And in fact, like I I have anger about the situation. Almost none of it is directed at Star City. It's almost entirely directed at the broader setup, at pandemic, at, you know, organized play decisions, at, at a bunch of stuff, but very little of it falls on Star City's lap. So it's worth noting. 
I'm not really angry. I'm just, uh, I don't know, like, you know, disappointed dad and yep. for, for two points. I don't know if you care to hear these or not. Of course I do. Uh, so the first is, you know, it's obviously like just the copy for the announcement or whatever. And they want to, like, they have goals for how the the words get perceived and what people talk about. And it may not be the actual reason for, like, why they're doing what they're doing or whatever. I, I don't yeah. have firsthand information about that. But in the copy, they wrote about how the article side of things was a big part of their marketing budget. And then they talked about how the articles did not pay for themselves. Well, that is normally not how a marketing budget works. Fair point. Uh, so, I mean, you, you could make an argument that when you say the words pay for yourselves, you're talking about overall impact to bottom line. But I agree with you as written. I did not read it that way. They are, they are not able to track like the overall impact, which is like another tricky thing, but also like potentially a failing of theirs, right? Where it's like, yep. do they know like how many cards I have sold for them per article per year, whatever. And it's like, obviously no. that stuff is like, really difficult to figure out, but it's like, yep. you could, you could be keeping some amount of track on that and like draw conclusions and whatever. And, and for the most part, like that sort of stuff was not happening possibly because it was a little too ethereal. But when, when you're like, okay, this is part of the marketing budget. This is to get people to come to our website and buy our cards. And then it's like, well, why isn't that also paying for itself? It's like, well, it's not really supposed to, because the whole point is for like us to sell the cards, which is where you make your money. Yeah. So yeah, it's just stuff like that where it's like, I, I don't really like that. And like, if if that was how they thought about it, I think that's pretty awkward. But regardless, the other thing was that if, you know, say six months, 12 months ago, they were like, hey, this is how we think things are going. And we don't think that we're going to be interested in doing this long term. Is Is there a way for us to like, have your column make us more money, I would have worked my ass off for that. Yeah. But they didn't. It was just like, mostly like, okay, uh, we've determined that it's not worth it. We're cutting y'all loose. And it's like, well, why don't we try and fix this? Because, yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of us could have. No, I mean, we certainly here on the podcast have made efforts to try and think about what works in this new era of magic, like what we're supposed to be talking about. And that's why we have shifted a little bit. Like, you know, we sort of realized that sideboard guides don't make sense when there's no tournaments to play. And that's not what we're doing here anymore. It's more, a little bit more news, a little bit more personality, a little bit more just, just chatting every week. And that has been a, a purposeful effort on our part, but it did feel like we sort of stuck to the same playbook at star city. And I was often saying, who am I writing this for? Like, what am I doing here? I, I, I don't really know who is asking for this content right now. And I moved a bit towards like, you know, listicle type articles because I think they're better at drawing engagement when it's not so much focused on tournament results and small moves like that. But you're right that there didn't really seem to be any overall tonal shift to account for what we were seeing in the broader marketplace. Yeah. And, uh, you know. Maybe at the end of the day, it's like it's not worth what they were paying me to keep me on, even if I was generating like slightly more revenue or whatever. But like, I don't know, man, could have tried, you know, or or at least like could have done a better job for the time that I spent remaining with them. Yeah. Yeah. Which, fair. You know, I like because at the end of the day, it is their decision, but it's also like, well, 
I did not generate enough value for them to want to keep me. So clearly this is, you know, some failing on my part, but also, you know, like I have bosses who are supposed to give me direction and I certainly asked for that direction. Right. But mm-hmm. it's, it's just kind of disappointing. Cause it's, it's like the, you know, we, we tried nothing and we're all out of ideas right. sort of thing. And like, we've seen a lot of that from wizards too. And that just, that sort of decision-making is very frustrating to me especially when it's like all happening within magic in the same space and it affects my livelihood. You know, it's just like compounds and compounds. Yes. Compounding is a a good word for it. The one other thing too, that I think sort of got lost in the shuffle was that, and I think this stuff predates the pandemic. I, I would have to check for sure to get my dates right. But there was a lot of shifting in strategy leading into this stuff that really didn't work either. Like the the new website launch was sort of a disaster in every conceivable way. That definitely hurts us and something we had no control over. And I think that the other big problem was an uncertainty with how they wanted to proceed with a premium model. There was the everything is premium moment that we had. And then there was the nothing is premium. And there was, there was just no clear plan as far as that goes. And we sort of bore the brunt of that and... You're, you're asked to produce through those conditions, it can be really tough. And I think people had legitimate gripes with the way that things were being organized for a while on the website. It's hard. You want to have as much responsibility in your fate as you possibly can, but that's just what like working for an employer is, right? You, yeah. You kind of don't have any control over it. No, that's certainly true. And that's why a lot of this is just like, you know, I, I throw my hands up in the air. It just kind of is what it is. Much like you, I'm, I'm very thankful for Star City and their treatment of me for like the vast, vast majority of things. I can think of like two things where I was like, Oh, this kind of sucks. And like one of the people who was responsible for that was fired shortly after, you know? So there's, there's like one instance where it's just like, Oh, this was like kind of a bad experience for like a day, but the rest of it was just like, I was treated very well. And I started writing for them in 2008 and I was like PT regular, I suppose, uh, Grand Prix top eight or whatever, but definitely not someone that folks should be listening to. And they, by they, I, I just mean like Pete, basically like, you know, gave me a chance. I, I produced, I did the best that I could, you know, very soon after that, I asked him to like, look at the numbers, see how I was doing. Like, am I worth a raise or whatever? And he was just like, I, I looked at it. Yeah, you are. You know, just just stuff like that, where it was like I did, I felt valued. And yeah. I had the exact same experience for what it's worth. Yeah, that persisted like throughout the entirety of a decade, you know, which is a long time for you to be treating someone pretty well. And also when I started was like, like I was dealing poker for a while and playing some magic and the poker dealing stuff lasted for like two, two and a half years, something like that, where I was making good money. And then it was not really legal. So we got shut down. And I had some money saved up, but like when I started writing for Star City was like when that money had run out. So it was like that also helped me pay rent. And then I got like a raise shortly after that. And then they started doing like SCG tour stuff and I started grinding that stuff. And it's like my life would be completely different if Star City didn't exist or didn't give me a chance because they were willing to give me money at a time where I when I needed it. Otherwise, like who knows what I would be doing. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. And, so life, you know, life-changing, absolutely yep. life-changing. Yep, and I would much rather focus on that stuff than you know the unfortunate end. But I, I do feel for everyone who is, is struck by this. All of our, 
our peers uh, definitely keep keep everyone in mind as you're consuming your magic content. I I just I'm so worried that like we had this entire ecosystem set up that was supporting so many lifestyles and folks were able to make. I mean, nobody got rich off this. That's just not, well, very few people got rich off this. It's certainly not the people I'm talking about who lost their job. Nobody got rich off of it. Right. But you were able to carve out a, a nice life for yourself, focus on the thing you love. And there's really nothing better you can do with your time on this planet as it stands right now than be able to support yourself doing the thing you are really passionate about. And we built that. And I, I hesitate to use the word weeks. I have almost nothing to do with it. It's more about people like you have been around the space for so long. So many people built that. To see that crumble is is a really hard pill to swallow. And uh, again, a source of a lot of my anger is just like, you, you sort of did it. You, you really, you, you made this world and it was, it was a better place for a lot of people. And then for no reason, because it's not a fucking dichotomy. You don't have to choose one or the other. You don't have to make a product accessible to everyone on the planet. You don't have to stop selling secret layers because you believe in tournament magic. Like you can, you can just do both. And right. One side got a very raw deal. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I, I think more so from like the Wizards aspect of things 100%. Than, than Star City because, like, yep. you know, Wizards is making more money than than Star City ever could. Right. But obviously they have like masters to report to as well, you know. So I I understand where it's like, well, this is not making us as much money as the other thing. Let's just cut it. And like that, that's it. It's just all numbers in a spreadsheet or whatever. But, you know, for for us on the human side of things, it it sucks to see like the wizard stuff go. And then uh, between like wizards kind of nixing organized play and obviously like COVID having a lot to do with it and everything like star city going that route too is not super surprising and no. it, it shouldn't be surprising. No, so. not at all. You, I can't really fault them for it. I, I understand what is driving the decision. Yeah. I would have liked a chance to try and turn it around, you know, but I mean, maybe that's what you and I get to do. Maybe. Other thing that this podcast is sponsored by is uh tanukis apparently. Yes, big Tanuki news in the world of Magic the Gathering and sort of a mixed bag when it comes to Tanuki news because people are going to be very excited for me believing that finally raccoons have come to Magic the Gathering. And I, I think even you, Gerald, I think you had a moment where like, oh, raccoons are here. And you ask me, look, man, why is this a dog? <laughs> look, man, my Tanuki lore comes from Super Mario Brothers 3 and to some extent, get an impact. Okay. That's about it. Greater Tanuki is a card in this uh, Champions of Kamigawa set. 4GG, 6-5, Enchantment Creature, Dog, Trample, uh, Channel 2G, Discard This, Search Your Library for a Basic Land Card, Put It on the Battlefield, Tap, then Shuffle. I was like, ooh, Tanuki, awesome. And then I was like, dog? Why is it a dog? Are Tanukis actually dogs? Well. Because I assume that they wouldn't just, like, blow that. Tanukis are, in fact, dogs. They are not related to raccoons in any way. Just, just not. They're so are, dogs. Are, are they literally dogs, or are they related to dogs? They are, dog- they're they're in the canine family. I don't think they are literally dogs. They are they are wild animals, and they look like a kind of raccoon shaped dog. I don't I don't really know how else to describe it. I mean, go Google a tanuki, and you'll get to take a look. But I was able to find for distribution on this podcast eight tanuki facts to share with everyone, and I got these from are- treehugger.com. 
Are, are we going to share all eight of the facts? Uh, we'll see. I'm going to start with them and I'll see how interesting they are. Okay. Num- number one is Tanukis are not related to raccoons, which I've already delivered to you. At all. They have the same face. No, are not close relatives of the common raccoon. But they're also like, you know, playful, which I, I you know, kind of picture raccoons as being as well. Let me, let me just read this to you because right. they have some clear information. Despite their masked appearance, Tanuki are not close relatives of the common raccoon, the famous species native to the United States. Tanuki belong to the Canadai family alongside wolves and foxes. In contrast, the common raccoon shares more in common with mustelids, a family that includes weasels, badgers, and otters. Their similar appearance could be a case of convergent evolution where different species evolve to occupy the same ecological niche. If you're playful, you get you get a tanuki face. That's that's what it amounts to. I guess so, yeah. Good I job, guess if evolution. You are, if you are very cute, you are a tanuki. They can climb trees is another fact given here. They are bred and killed in the fur trade. This is extremely disappointing. Fur is bullshit. No reason for it. Yep. Don't buy fur. An invasive species in Europe. So I, that's interesting because I know the raccoon is an invasive species in Japan. They actually have a huge problem with raccoons. As I, this was once presented to me, I, I'm not going to present this as fact. This is the story I was told was that there was a very popular anime in like the 60s and 70s starring a raccoon and people started importing raccoons as pets to Japan. They were like, oh shit, I have a raccoon in my house. This animal's crazy. Put it outside and then raccoons just kind of took over Japan and they live in a bunch of temples now. <laughs> this isn't anything like how it acted on the anime. What is this? Right. They were very disappointed. So interesting counterpoint there. Tanukis are highly social creatures. They're the only canines that hibernate and actually they hibernate in groups. So they like cuddle up together and hibernate side by side. Very cute behavior. That's cute as hell. That, that sounds to me like raccoon behavior. Yeah. Important position in Japanese folklore, which is why we are seeing them as part of this return to Kamigawa. There's also something going on with their scrotum that is important in Japanese folklore. Like they are often pictured with an oversized scrotum. I'll let you do research on Tanuki scrotums yourself and you can check out what's going on there. But uh, finally, they are one of the most ancient canine species in the world. So those are your your eight Tanuki facts brought to you by treehugger.com. I hear you Googling Tanuki scrotums over there as we speak. So Don't worry about what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm leaving that up to listeners whether that's what they want to Google. All right. So the two things came to mind. One is Studio Ghibli movie Palm Poco. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this? Do you remember this? No, but I, but I am familiar with it. I haven't seen it though. Uh, so this article says that they're raccoons in Pompoco. I don't remember. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm not sure. Okay. Either. Well, this article says Pompoco focuses on a clan of Tanuki and in parentheses, Japanese raccoon dogs. Yeah. Okay. So I think there's a lot of confusion around Tanuki in general. I would be uh, very careful with what people say about Tanukis. Anyway, I, I love the Ghibli stuff. Mm-hmm. It's for the most part, Really, really good. This was one of the ones, and like, granted, I think it's this is early, right? Yeah, it's it's one of the older ones. Yeah, and it's just like they they use their ball sacks as like wind gliders, and uh, it's weird. It's weird, right? That is weird. The other thing is Shaman King. Okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out what race 
these yep yep they they are uh oh okay one yeah one is a, a tanuki with large testicles and its its friend is a kitsune okay uh so yeah there there are these two things that i've seen where it's just like yep these things just have really big balls i guess i don't i don't get it uh, one theory is that the depiction of the giant scrotum dates to the 19th century when metal workers wrap gold into nuki skin before hammering it into gold leaf. The strength of the now, th- did they wrap it in their scrotum? Is that what they're suggesting here? I don't know, man. We could just stop talking about this. Yeah, this is we are way too. I didn't anticipate there would be this much scrotum talk on, on this week's podcast. It's a very strange direction we've taken. I think this is this is the first time ever talking about scrotums on the podcast, though. Probably so, you know. the, the first and last, I hope. Yes, I hope so. But so thank you, Greater Tanuki, uh, for mm. you know, all of this. Very playful, very fun. Yes, as Tanukis often are. Yes. Well, alleged, how about, how about some some magic? Actually, this card isn't bad. But how about some cards that are even better, destined to make a difference? Because there are, there are some cool cards that have been revealed on this the first day officially of Kamigawa at Neon Dynasty previews. I mean, what what card do you want to start with? Because all these cards are like, wow, there's a lot of text, and they all do things. But are they are they going to be busted, Brian? So I don't see anything that's busted yet. That is that is not where my uh, excitement lies. My excitement lies in a bunch of cards that are kind of what I would term my kind of good. And now I know what I want to start with because there's a card that I I just absolutely love in this set. And I loved it from the moment I saw it. Which card? I'll read it. It is the reality chip towards the bottom. uh, I'd say towards the middle of our list here. One U, O4, legendary artifact, creature, equipment, jellyfish. And there are three paragraphs. So... Starting here is not good for me personally. Excellent. You may you may look at the top card of your library anytime. As long as the reality chip is attached to a creature, you may play lands and cast spells from the top of your library. Reconfigure to you, which is attached to target creature you control or unattached from a creature. Reconfigure only as a sorcery while attached. This isn't a creature. So starts... As a creature, you can equip it to something. If for whatever reason you need the body back, you can unequip it. This stuff is weird, but I get that it's like, you know, we're, we're in future land, right? Let's make some robots or whatever. A weird cyber jellyfish. As soon as I saw the creature typing, I was like, this is, this is out there. And it sort of paints a picture of what this set is all about. There's, there's strange stuff here. There's futuristic mechs all over the place. The reconfigurability is doing the sort of cyborg thing back and forth. And this card is exactly as good as I want my magic cards to be always. It is maybe, possibly, if you work hard enough, a good enough effect to get paid on. Probably not, though. And that is exactly the sweet spot for me. I want the cards to inspire me to think and try and figure out how to maximize them. You want the card to be like, yo, you should try me. Yeah. And, then, and then you try them and you're like, yeah, it's not quite there. But that was a fun experiment. And I learned some e- stuff. Exactly. And that's where I expect the reality chip to fall. You know, an 04 blocker for two mana can do some work for you. It, it's saving life points. And then you move this around sort of at will and get it to do the things you need it to do. And playing lands and casting spells from the top of your library, that's powerful. That's that's real powerful. That's future sight stuff. And it is it is tough to find this and the material to put it on and do it all in a reasonable amount of time. But all the pieces together are just so cool, so flavorful. And I I think this is my favorite card in the entire set. 
Uh, I mean, it's an artifact too. So if you want to talk about potential like modern or pioneer or historic sure. applications, like yeah, yeah. Urza alongside it. Urza, it's pretty interesting. So. Yeah. Yeah, or it yeah. makes a ton of mana instead of spinning. You can just future sight and then spin to reset your future sight and whatever. Exactly. So it is interesting. I agree with you. It is that type of card where it's like, yeah, maybe I'll build some decks around this, but I'm not expecting too much. If it ends up being pretty solid, I won't be too shocked. The end. Cool. That's that's exactly where I'm at on it. And uh, I, I think one of the things that is going to stand out across this preview season is – Thus, thus far on on day one, none of this is stuff that I'm like, oh, the metagame is about to completely change. None of these cards have the raw power where I think they are going to push things in a different direction. But they are all interesting and cool and flavorful. And that is a fine thing to focus on for the time being. This is way more text than OG Kamigawa. I will say that. That is that is magic in a nutshell, and yeah. especially because we're dealing with you know double sided cards, which maybe that's a fine point to discuss next. If you have one of those, you All like, right. I'm I'm going to start at the bottom of uh, the mythic spoiler list, okay, and then we can just go up in like veto cards. Sure. Life of Toshiro Umazawa One B, Enchantment Saga, Chapter One and Chapter Two are both the same. Choose one. Target creature gets plus two plus two until end of turn. Target creature gets minus one minus one until end of turn, or you gain two life. You know, so abilities from the GTA. Uh, chapter three is exile the saga, then return it to the battlefield transformed under your control. That is a two, three enchantment creature, human samurai with tap, pay one life, add B, spend this mana only to cast an instant or sorcery spell. There's a lot of cards like this that are sagas that become creatures. They are very interesting and it's difficult to gauge how strong like each individual thing will be because it's not like a gold span dragon where you get like this quick burst of stuff, right? It's, it's a bunch of like small things added up over a few turns. There's maybe like some recursion aspects that you can look into. And uh, when we were talking earlier, the thing that you said was that this is just like adventure creatures 2.0. And when you put it that way, it's like, okay, yeah, all of these are probably pretty good. They are, slower they are less flexible but in terms of just output you know we're going to magical christmas land i think that is sometimes useful in preview season sometimes not in this case when you're reframing a new card type i I actually do think it's very useful so let's do that with life of tashiro umazawa you are on the draw and your opponent has played a couple one drops to start and they are one drops that are fragile they don't have a big back end and you kill a one drop when you put life of Tashiro Umazawa down. And then on your next turn, when you draw a card, you take out a second one drop. And on your third turn, you are given this two, three creature that can accelerate you to your late game, whatever your big finisher is, you know, if it's Lolf or blood on the snow or whatever, we're trying to get to in our, in our well, black it's, deck. It's only instant or sorcery. Instant or sorcery. So, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So yeah. no Lolf, but blood yeah. on the snow is a good one. Blood on the snow works. And Certainly plenty of other options. That kind of output from a two-mana card is it's, it's wild. It's it, absurd. Yeah. Yeah. If and this is a this is a uncommon version of this type of card. So you get into rares, mythics. How much are you going to be getting from these sagas, which function as both removal spells or in some cases ramp, which I would like to talk about next, or in some cases 
a combo enabler, which we can talk about with Machiko's Reign of Truth. Like there's there's so much weird stuff here, but the potential output in the best scenarios is huge, just absolutely tremendous. Like you're talking three cards worth of output from your two drop, and uh, it, it it doesn't make me nervous given the context of broader standard. But in terms of just like raw power of a card type, people should probably pay very close attention to every single one of these saga creatures. It's interesting, too, because for the adventure side of things, it was like you cast and then cast. And you normally get two pretty reasonable things from it. You know, like even even Lovestruck Beast, there there were moments where like the one one actually like blocked a relevant thing. And. So it was like both both sides are a real card, but it also just like fed the back half of the card, you know, and things like Murderous Rider. It's like you're getting like a pretty good deal and then like a medium deal, but you're still getting an extra piece of cardboard out of it. And like the lifelink helps you stabilize, whatever. This is just like you're, you're paying the two mana once and you're getting all of these things. So, yeah, maybe yeah. it's like a little bit weaker if you compare it like directly to an adventure creature or whatever. And in the case of uh, Tashiro, a lot of it is probably going to hinge on how good the minus one minus one thing is like are you actually going to get to kill a creature with this because if yes it's absurd if you're like gaining some life and getting it's not a, that's a two, not three. bad yeah it's, it's not bad especially i mean if like if you're game doing, four get a two three for two mana does that that's not unappealing to me at all no it's not i mean in if you're talking about like against a creature matchup right it's like oh they didn't have their one drop so i i do this instead that's good against mm-hmm. like a more controlling deck or a mid-range deck you know maybe this is less good but whatever but yeah, it's just like you're getting so much for like such a cheap amount of mana that it's it's kind of scary to me. I agree, and that's going to continue on a bunch of these uh, sagas. Okay, uh, let's talk about you. Want do you want to talk about ramp one first? Is that what you're saying? Sure. Yeah, let's talk about that. Well, okay. So Besaju doesn't ramp you, right? So you want Azusa's Many Journeys? Yes, that is the one that I find a little bit more interesting. 1G, Enchantment Saga, Chapter 1, you may play an additional land this turn. Chapter 2, gain 3 life. Chapter 3, flicker this, return to the backside. As a 3-3 enchantment creature, human monk, whenever this becomes blocked, untap up to 3 lands you control. So, 2 mana, 3-3, play a land, gain 3 life. This is not, like, explore type of stuff right like you you in a lot of those decks you'd rather have the card than the three three but it's, absolutely it's it's certainly interesting it's something I and mean, there's something there and the potential to be punished on block is weird i mean you know the timing really has to work for you very well and it's all there though i mean the pieces are there and the only real concern with this card is delay it it takes time and if you have the time Jeez, that's just so much output from a single card. Yeah, I agree. This is this is one of the cards specifically. Like the the Umazawa one is just like, well, you could play this in like any sort of like black mid-range type of deck, right? And you mm-hmm. could see it kind of fitting. This is one where it's like, well, if you want like a two mana three three, cool, you can get this, although obviously it's on like significant delay. What what sort of deck would you want? to get like the ramp and the life gain and the three, three you get like a mini locks it on high arc and uh, an extra land drop. Yeah. So storm, the festival comes to mind. I mean, like yeah. this is, this is a hit off of it. It's, it's not the best hit, but like you do need to keep your hit count very high in those decks that does the job of buying you more time. It accelerates you to your storm. Maybe you could leverage like a block likeness of the seeker into producing some mana at a crucial time for you. It, it's, it's iffy. I mean, it, 
you obviously would prefer some kind of instant payoff, and I don't have one that immediately comes to mind. But yeah, I, I that's one of the first places I go. Depending on the color combination, sometimes they play Memory Deluge, which is fair, pretty yeah. solid with this. But yeah, for for the most part, I would just imagine that if you are a slower mid range type of deck, like you're not putting on a ton of pressure. If if they cared about you untapping lands, like they can probably just afford to block it at least for like the first, or afford to not block it rather. Yeah. For the first few turns. Uh, yeah, so I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't count on that mana. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. So you know, two mana, three three, gain some life, uh, make an extra land drop. That's like kind of great, even if the three three is on delay. I think so. I think so. It's just hard to find a bad version of this effect, quite frankly. If if you're getting something, it's usually worth it. Yeah. Again, another uncommon. So it's like, well, this is this is still pretty nice. Yep. Michiko's Reign of Truth, one dub. Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 are the same. Target creature gets plus 1, plus 1 until end of turn for each artifact and or enchantment you control. And Chapter 3 is the flicker thing. The backside is an enchantment creature, human, noble, zero, zero, that gets plus 1, plus 1 for each artifact and or enchantment you control. So base, plus 1, plus 1 on the chapter because the enchantment, the saga itself is an enchantment, and then the backside itself is an enchantment also. So base 1, 1, but... This is asking you to build a very specific deck, and yes. is, these are the type of decks that I like. So I'm interested. Very, very specific, but a h- incredibly powerful payoff. And if you think about existing decks, you go to Historic and Pioneer. Where Pioneer, we have, for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I think this is a slam dunk inclusion in our... Why am I blanking on what we call these Orzov decks? Orzov? Yeah, but like... Hammer? Oh, there's there's hammer and modern, but what do we call the pioneer version with like SRAM and stuff? Auras. Auras on auras. Yeah, I don't I don't know about auras. Maybe it's okay. I was thinking just like the Insoul decks would, would like something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean like Insoul has sort of shifted to white anyway, so there's some incentive to be in this color as it stands, and that seems completely fine to me. I I think there's multiple ways that Mishokos could do something really cool. It is, like you said, more narrow, but also potentially more powerful. And it's good in the late game, too. Yeah. Like a lot of these things, if you get the option to play an additional land when you top the, something on turn eight, you're not super excited about that. But if you've been building up a battlefield and you can give your evasive threat plus seven, plus seven twice in a row, that, that sounds pretty good to me for two mana. Yeah, you're, you're going to have like your real threats get killed. You have an ornithopter just chilling there and a bunch of nonsense artifacts like this thing is a real threat. No, I think so. Uh, what, what about we round out the saga talk with with a rare? How does that sound? Do you want to talk about like the Dragon Kami Reborn? Yeah, sure. It's got it's got a million things of text, so why not? Plenty uh, of words. 2G, Enchantment Saga, Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 are the same. You gain two life. Look at the top three cards in your library. Exile one of them face down with a hatching counter on it. Then put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. Uh, chapter 3, Exile this, Return to the Battlefield Transformed. Backside is an 01 enchantment creature egg. Whenever this or a dragon you control dies, you may cast a creature spell from among cards you own in exile with hatching counters on them without paying its mana cost. So gets some life, you set some cards aside, you get this egg, and then maybe you get to cash in those set aside cards if you hit something like big or cool, but you have to have like the egg die or a dragon die. So it's a lot of setup. A lot of setup, but in decks that are trying to just do one thing and put this huge threat into play, 
uh, I mean, this kind of, again, Storm the Festival plays extremely well with this. If you were trying to get to a very specific end game and like you're just trying to accumulate more and more stuff until you play something huge in the end, maybe it's uh, Cultivator or something like that, which is, you know, a, a modern power level card when it's built around. Granted, your Storm the Festivals don't help you put that into play, but you're accumulating more and more lands and it's just this whole snowball mechanic where this card gaining you life and remaining extremely threatening once it does its transformation seems kind of enticing to me. And you can get a tremendous discount on mana as well. Like if you are cheating in an eight drop with your three mana card, that is reanimation polymorphing type efficiency and decks are often built around that. Yeah. I mean the, the polymorph decks show up just going as far back as modern, right? So in lower power level formats like pioneer, they're exceptional, even if you're not hitting like Emrakul Deanne's turn or something. Yep. But there are enough weird cards in modern, I'm trying to think of the the green one, where you like do it, you each get a creature, and then the the creature is like blinking theirs onto yeah, your side. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Uh it's like it, it seems challenge. like almost dubious challenge, yes. Yeah. So like people are doing stuff like that in order to put Emrakul into play. This is maybe a little bit slower, but uh, still has like the same kind of upside, the same sort of power level. And yeah, maybe you can't put in something that powerful in, in Pioneer, but it'd be interesting to see what like the most powerful thing is. For sure. And it's it's just an, another way this or uh, Saga setup is, is being used. And I, I think it's fascinating. I think these are cool cards, but they, they do give me a little bit of pause. You, you get so much for such little investment and the time delay needs to be the difference maker and in some formats it will be you know modern faster formats maybe even historic that's a lot to ask to always have to wait for your payoff but in something like standard especially a standard that can afford to do more mid-range now if you read my article this week you know i am skeptical whether we have actually crafted a standard with bands holy holy shit we didn't even talk about the fact they banned three cards in standard no we just like fucking skipped over old news baby I, they banned I cards, then we got banned from SCG. Now there are new cards to talk about, you know. I can't believe that's not a, a headline news item, but here we are. Uh, yeah, multiple bands over in Standard. And Go, Going forward on, on B&R days, we're going to have to record emergency podcasts. You know that, right? I I guess I guess so. I guess we can we can go back to that if that's what we have to do. I said I wouldn't do that until they weren't an emergency anymore. And this one, again, did not feel like an emergency, so... No, but as far as it not being an old news item, you know? Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, I guess we could just like write up a thing. That's fine too. We don't have to actually sure. podcast it, but like, you know, people like hearing us talk about things. So We can do whatever we want. The world's our oyster. It's true. Whatever anyway, yeah, some, some stuff got banned. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Standard is probably slightly better. I still think it has a hole breaker horror problem is the shortest version of a summation I can give you. Epiphany, Haven, and Divide by Zero. Divide by Zero. Well, I, I think it makes sense. It does I, I make sense. Do. It's just hilarious. It is hilarious. But uh, the other thing is that Divide by Zero was like the only card that could interact with Holebreaker Horror on the stack. So yep. that card just resolves now. And I don't know how the format's about anything other than that. And I am hopeful that Kamigawa can change that up. But if you've Dude. read what I have written about... Holebreaker Horror, you know that I don't believe you can interact with Holebreaker Horror profitably. I don't think that's a real thing. Maybe the Dragon Kami Reborn is just doing Holebreaker Horror stuff, you know? Sure. 
Why not? That's a pretty more, good creature to put onto the battlefield. More Hellbreaker Horrors. Yeah, I think I think you can find several ways to cheat it into play. And yeah, I have a feeling we'll, we'll get to do that emergency podcast at uh, a point sometime in the, I hope, near future. Probably a little bit further off them. Yeah, probably. Because I still don't foresee a ton of people playing standard regardless. That is true. Yeah, I mean, true. it'll it'll definitely go up a little bit. Yep. Anyway, we'll see. There's there's some other ones, Air of Enlightenment, Modern Age. It's like, okay, these are these are fine, these are solid. How do you feel about teachings of the Kirin? I have to remind myself which one this is. This is the so this is the the rare other rare green one. Yeah, this is the self mill one, which is why I'm like, eh, maybe it like all it says is like you know mill and, and make some one ones or whatever. Make a right? one one. But yeah, like, but we have been hurting for that effect for a while, and being able to mill is a often a large deal. Yeah. So this is this is not uh, my reality ship. This is not my tippy top so far. But this is definitely one of the ones where I'm like, ah, I kind of have to build around. I, I understand. And why don't you tell us what the, the backside does? Uh, okay. So the, the front side, uh, 1G, Enchantment Saga, Chapter 1, mill three cards, make a 1-1, one, one, colorless spirit creature token. Chapter 2, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control. So you get like a 2-2 two, two for two mana. Grizzly bearish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, chapter 3, exile, etc. Backside is a 1-1 one, one enchantment creature, snake monk. Whenever this attacks, choose one. Uh, either exile target creature card from a graveyard when you do create a 1-1 colorless spirit creature token or exile target non-creature card from a graveyard when you do put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control. So you go wide, you go tall, you mill yourself a little bit. Yeah, you just kind of need to not be interacted with whatsoever. Like this card is super fragile. And when you look at sort of the output you get from the commons and uncommons, it feels like this output is way more contingent on things going right than it is for those other cards, which is strange, I guess. But That's true, but ideally this fits in a shell with some synergy. Right, and a higher ceiling for sure. Like if you keep this on the battlefield for a while, it can overwhelm games and you know you keep a clear battlefield, keep this attacking and you will benefit from it. I am, I'm not over the moon about this, but you're right that mill three cards is a noteworthy thing for sure. Yeah, also kind of worth noting at this point that there's a bunch of enchantments. There's a bunch of artifacts mm-hmm. in the set. A lot of them seem pretty reasonable. And I think it is time to do a search for like what sort of disenchants are in the format and how good they are. Now, was this a purposeful segue? Because there is there is a disenchant right here for us to discuss. Uh, I mean, like this is not what I was talking about. I was more so talking about like, you know, are we are we playing like return to nature main? Is there a better one? Is there something that comes attached to a creature? You know, I'm not actually okay. going to do that search, but I'm just saying like something to think about when you are building decks uh, for okay. for this new standard format. But yeah, besides you who endures old Kamigawa had these legendary lands that you know, they had one for each color. They were they were functionally just like a swamp or whatever. They just came into play untapped, add black mana, and then they had some other ability that was like sometimes relevant, most of the time not relevant. These lands are so much better. Yeah. Uh, so Besaju is a legendary land that just taps for G, channel one G, discard this, destroy target, artifact, enchantment, or non-basic land, and opponent controls. That player may search their library for a Land card with a basic land type. So shock lands, dual lands do apply. Uh, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control, as if it needed that last part. But, you know, compare this to Okina, man. Like, this this card is nice. 
Night and day, extremely flexible card. I I am having a hard time envisioning what a green deck that doesn't play this looks like. Well, like especially you, in, the, in terms of standard, you don't even need oh, snow yeah. cover forest anymore. Yep, so, absolutely. So it's legendary, but the the additional copies, like you have a couple different ways to use them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and look, that's not the most efficient removal spell you've ever seen, but it covers a lot of ground. And I, I think especially in older formats where you are often like, I answer this thing or I die. It's it's real appealing to have more outs to Blood Moon. Granted, you know, you're playing more non-basics, so you may be more vulnerable. But uh, things like Tron Lands, all that stuff that you just must answer. Beseju cleans it all up. It does so fairly cheaply. It does so with a downside. But this is this is your safety valve. This is an emergency catch-all that you're using I think a really great one. I expect this card to be widely played across several formats. I just don't see how it's not. This plus Ren Six against something like Tron is like super nice. It's like way better than having to play Ghost Quarter and like oh yeah, missing your land drop and also just playing Ghost Quarter and your Ren and Six deck already is not great. So there there are stuff like that, and there are a lot of green decks that are. Mostly like fringy, you know, I think of just like Bant Stoneblade or like Elves or whatever, where it's just like these are going to sneak in a couple copies. Just like so many decks are going to have this in their mana base in modern. It's just going to be absurd. I think it's a really good thing for gameplay, though. It I think is. having it outs is. to that kind of stuff that are, are low cost, but some cost. I mean, uh, you know, you're not going to play too many copies of this legendary land, but almost everyone will want to pack one Besaju if they can afford to do so in their mana base and... I think the answer will often be yes, that you can play this card. Yeah, and then there's obviously like commander applications too, where it's just like every green commander deck is probably going to play this, right? So it's like, I don't know. This is going to be a, probably a very expensive rare unless, uh, you know, there's some expensive mythics in the set that like absorb a lot of value. Yeah, I, I don't know that expensive rares exist anymore, but probably the alt art Hallbreaker extended Horror, frame. Memory Deluge, like, the, I mean, those, those Do cards. they actually cost money? I, I don't, I don't know. I haven't bought a magic card in a very long those, time. Those were like six to $8. And I'm sure Memory Deluge is still there. And like granted, a lot of that okay. is being propped up from modern and stuff, but like there, yeah. there's probably, uh, you know, commander applications and whatnot for that card too. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Uh, certainly, if a rare can be expensive, this checks all the boxes. It's just all over the place. Yeah, so and, uh, Deluge is currently five seventy five on Magic Online. It's fourteen and a half tickets. Four thousand tickets. But Magic Online stuff is weird because, like, the D and D set didn't really have playable stuff. So, like, Den of the Bugbear is forty tickets. Yep, because it's the best <laughs> part of the a, set. That's so. a wild one. You know, it's weird, but uh, yeah, if you're if you're gonna pick up this card, you know, you're gonna put it in decks, obviously, right? So. Yep. Get it while, while it's cheap if you can. I haven't actually checked pre-order prices. There's way too much stuff going on like both today and yesterday. Right. Enthusiastic Mechanaut. You are 2-2 artifact creature, goblin artificer, flying artifact spells you cast cost one less to cast. These cards trick me all the time, Brian. They trick you and you think they're going to be better than they actually are? No. I, I, I'm like, oh, this looks kind of appealing. Then they just end up being pretty bad. But like, you know, two mana, two, two flyer is not bad. It's not great in today's world. You need artifacts that are worth cost reducting and you need to play a deck with a bunch of artifacts. Maybe a setup for that is going to be here. 
maybe it isn't, you know. But that, that is the question as far as I'm concerned, because I don't think like the power level, this effect basically already exists in older formats for the most part. You can get as much of this as you want. Yes. So I don't think it changes much there. No, I don't I'm just think, talking about standard. Yeah, for, for standard, it's all about the surrounding stuff. So that we're just gonna have to wait and see. But you're right, there's a lot of artifacts in the set. Uh, Silver for Master is Splinter, which I don't know if I love or hate. It's hard to say. Uh, it's, it's a cool looking card. I, I enjoy that. Uh, I, I enjoy the Return of Ninjutsu, which this card has. But this is a weird set. There's a lot of weird stuff here, and I, I mostly love it. Some of it feels a little on the nose, but yeah, it, it has not really failed to make me smile at least once every time. So, How do you feel about Simeon Sling? So this is this is our equipment monkey. Okay, just just thumbs up or thumbs down, man. Thumbs up. Okay. Thumbs up on the equipment monkey. I like the. I, I mean, it, it sort of makes sense to me. It's cool. <laughs> R one one artifact creature equipment monkey equipped creature gets plus one plus one whenever this or equipped creature becomes blocked. It deals one damage to defending player and has reconfigure two. And the picture is kind of what sells it for me. Yes, I like, agree. It's this little robot monkey on uh, a samurai's shoulder and it's, I don't know, you know, throwing little snowballs or something. It's funny. It's funny. And it makes, it kind of makes sense. Like I, I can buy why this is both equipment and creature. It's like this little thing that you can somehow put on, put on your armor and it, it's cool. Like I said, it, it got a smile out of me uh, being able to say there's a, an equipment monkey in the game. I, I have a lot of, a lot of space for nonsense that fits within the magic world. I, I, I am less into the stuff that sort of breaks the illusion of magic and reaches into other spaces. But when the nonsense is still rooted in like, yes, I get this. I sort of understand how this relates to the things we've seen before. I'm all for it. And this is exactly my kind of nonsense. You know that if this was like a Pixar movie, you know, like Kamigawa was a Pixar movie. There would be like a little robot shoulder monkey that just like threw peanuts at you or whatever. Of right? course. And it's just like, yeah. So having kind of like a one-off thing like that in magic and especially conveying it so well, like with the text, with the mechanics, Mechanically, with yes. the art, it's just like, okay, this is awesome. Also our red one drops have been like pretty bad as yeah. of late. Yeah, this is good. And this card's good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's playable. I, I I wouldn't say it's good, but it's like, you know, it's, it's a thing that you put in your deck and you're not super unhappy about it. Like Sandy dog is going to win a tournament with this card in his deck. I'm going to say it's good because it's a good monkey and I won't have any monkey slander here on the podcast, but your, your point about the mechanics of it are like spot on. And that's the thing that really resonates throughout this set. It's one of the reasons why I love like the cyber jellyfish so much. Like I, it just makes sense to me. I get it. I get why this is the set of abilities on this card and it all seems clear, which is, wild to say when you're adding a cyber jellyfish to magic it doesn't seem like something that should fit but i think they mechanically nailed so many of these yeah meanwhile there's like a splinter thing right where it's like okay you you just put splinter into your set and i'm i'm pretty sure i don't like that but i i think there's also a ninja turtle at some point oh no yeah i mean you had the nizumi you had ninjas i think that you could probably make the argument that you were surprised that it didn't happen the first time Right, but yeah, this was this was on Star City on their their widely read news section, which will now hold up the in, entire website. Sorry, that was that was a little bitter. No, it's uh, it's okay, man. <laughs> they said something about a uh, Ninja Turtle being spoiled. So All right, if you want to see the article, check that out. Uh, secluded courtyard land 
When it enters the battlefield, choose a creature type, tap, add C, tap, add one mana of any color. Spend this mana only to cast a creature spell of the chosen creature type or activate an ability of a creature or creature card of the chosen type. Card is excellent, maybe not for standard, but definitely modern. Yep. We know these cards hit every time. There's not, there's not even any math to do here. They are always important. So Spirit, Spirited Companion, one dub, one one, enchantment creature dog. When this enters the battlefield, draw a card. Excellent card. Enchantment creature with this type is, is a big deal. There's a lot through Magic's history where you benefit from having uh, an enchantment enter the battlefield, drawing a card, and then having the card draw stapled onto it. There's also like recursion of enchantments that you can possibly benefit from. So this strikes me as extremely important. I I don't know where it slots, probably nowhere as it stands now, but it has a lot of potential and it's not just in this format either. I think you can talk older formats as well. Yep. Uh, Reading some of these cards for like the third time to to determine whether or not they're worth talking about. Uh, Let's just go to Planeswalkers. What do you think? All right, Planeswalker time, and there's there's several of them here. Uh, Tomio, Completed Sage. 2GU and then H, where H is uh, Phyrexian or green or blue. Is that an accurate description? I think so. I would be amazed if anyone followed it. Like, I don't think you did anything wrong. I think you presented it exactly how it should be. But it is a much easier card to look at than it is to say. Yeah, 2GU or... Uh, H Phyrexian mana. So uh, it didn't help. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're trying uh, your best. You're not doing anything wrong. It's just, I, I just keep restating the definition and it's yes. just like, no, this does not help me. Okay. Yes. Uh, legendary planeswalker, Tomio five starting loyalty. It has the keyword completed where the hybrid mana can be paid with G U or two life. If life was paid, this planeswalker enters with two fewer loyalty counters. So five mana for five loyalty, or four and uh, Phyrexian for three starting loyalty. Does that help? Yeah, that was good. Okay, plus one. Tap up to one target artifact or creature. It doesn't untap during its controller's next untap step. Minus X, exile target non-land permanent card with mana value X from your graveyard. Create a token. That's a copy of that card. Minus seven, create Tamio's Notebook, a legendary colorless artifact token with spells you cast, cost two less to cast, and tap, draw a card. So... Best case scenario, cast this for five, get like a chariot or something, right? Immediately, yes. Yeah, otherwise, uh, you can just like tap and freeze something to protect itself, build up to the notebook, or wait until you mill yourself a little bit more or one of your things dies. Like, it, it's it's okay. It does a lot of stuff. I think the five-mana version looks more appealing than the completed version because of like low loyalty, meaning that you can't minus X or alt as quickly. But if the format is about, like, controlling one big threat, then that's kind of cool. Then this might be solid. Right. I, I think that's what will really shape how much play Tamiyo sees is how good the defensive ability actually is. The other scenario I could see this card being very good is where there are some cheap permanents that you're sort of incentivized to recycle over and over. Yeah. Maybe because they have some kind of comes into play ability and eventually turn into something more. Does this remind you of any cards that we've seen elsewhere in, in this set? In this set? Yeah. No, no idea. Sagas. I, I think like returning sagas could be very interesting. They're all mostly cost two. Yeah. It's slow, but in terms of like getting, again, maximum output from that minus X ability, and it works 
early on too. You know, if, if you play it for four mana, I think it's very possible that if your first flip creature got destroyed, you just have Tamiyo on curve and are ready to go uh, getting your benefits from the saga again. So I, that's really appealing to me. If there's like a zero worth returning, I mean, I, I'm not trying to say that I would want to bring back Mishra's Bauble with this because that feels extremely slow and not really what that format is about. But you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. that's a, a very fair engine and you can it's, find a way to do that a little cleaner. I might start getting interested. It's also weird because it exiles the thing, which that is true. So you need multiples. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's nice, right? It's like, you know, think about how many times like Luris recurs the exact same Mishra's bobble and you're just like, I yep. just, just kill me. Like I don't want this game to end now. Whereas yep. yeah, this, this needs to do, it needs to find like a lot of gas or one big good thing to return. There is a spirit in standard that I've, I've put in too many decks. I I couldn't tell you the name of it. It's a just it costs green whenever a card leaves your graveyard. It gets plus one plus one. Oh, uh, okay. Yes, yeah. got a little stew going. Yeah, this fuels that. This recurs that. So keep that in play over and over. Interesting applications. I think this is a cool card. I the the Phyrexian flavor is not a home run for me. I think I wish it felt a little bit more Phyrexian when it is in the Phyrexian mode. It's sort of just like, here's a worse version of the Planeswalker, which not a home run from a flavor perspective. I wish it did a little bit more there, but still in terms of applications, it, this will be an interesting card to puzzle around. All right. Simic self mill stompy. I'm on it. I, I, I on love it. it. I mean, what I, what I actually, I know that sounds silly, but my ideal version of standard has that as a tier like 2.5 deck. That's what I think standard should be is you should be able to do things like yeah. that. It won't be the best thing, but like you don't just get Alan's epiphany out of the game and, or whole, whole horror out of the game. You are, you are in it. You are making bodies. And when things go well, you succeed. Oh, you know what? Not that I think that this pairs particularly well based on the text of the card, but I mean, this is a five mana permanent to storm the festival into for whatever okay. that's worth. Yeah, that's cool. So, yeah, is is a thing that you could like cast for four is a small version. You storm the festival yeah. into it. You no, have that's more that's nice for storm the festival because you need to be playing at all parts of the curve. Yeah. but you want you want to maximize your hits, and this functions as both. So. And good this, catch. This is a defensive card that you can festival into, which like there weren't a lot of good ones. Like a lot no, of the time, weren't. you moved into white for like brutal Cathar because you wanted something that was defensive, and this kind of does that to you. So yeah, yeah, I'm kind of about that. Very interesting. Yeah, and maybe if you have other, uh, you know, if you are self mailing, you have other defensive cards in your bin. Uh, things like portable hole that you could just minus and bring back a, a, a token of that. I that, could see that being appealing. That's so. a good one because it's so cheap. Yeah. No, I, I'm into this card. It's interesting. Something's worth exploring. Yeah. Tezzeret, Betrayer of Flesh, 2UU, Legendary Planeswalker Tezzeret, four starting loyalty, uh, static ability, the first activated ability of an artifact you activate each turn, costs two less to activate. A lot of activates there. Yeah. Uh, say activate again. Uh, plus one, draw two cards, then discard two cards unless you discard an artifact card. Minus two, target artifact becomes an artifact creature. If it isn't a vehicle, it has base power and toughness 4-4. Four, four. Minus six, you get an emblem with whenever an artifact you control becomes tapped, draw a card. I think the emblem looks super fun, right? Because you're like, I'm going to tap my mana rocks and like whatever. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what to do with the static. The minus is interesting because it's like another insole artifact on a stick type of thing. So it could be a top end for an artifact deck. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of weird 
text, like, you know, if it's not a vehicle, then it has this power toughness change and then discard two, unless you discard an artifact has always been weird to me versus like, you know, either discard two or discard an artifact. But so the card reads kind of weird, but it's not bad. It's just going to be incredible in my Colossal Plow deck as I quickly make a 6-3. And I'm actually not sure that's better than making a 4-4. But still, I could do it, and that's what matters. Uh, Doesn't the Plow add mana? It does. Whenever it attacks, you get 3. Yeah, I mean, that seems better than a 4-4. Uh, I am concerned about the vulnerability of the 6-3 body. Uh, look, of course, of course. Let's not get into the specifics of my Colossal Plow deck. Uh, it's, we'll figure that out when we get there, and it's probably not going to be that important. But it's a weird card. I don't see an immediate slam dunk home. Colossal Plow is sort of the first thing I want to do with it, which doesn't bode well for its long-term viability. But uh, who knows? We'll check it out. We'll... I, I like your opinion of it as like a top end in the Insoul stuff as a sideboard option that seems appealing to me. So... Maybe that'll be a, a potential use for Tezzeret. I wonder what the best thing you can do with the static is. That's a good question. Like that's that, question. that I think is more applicable for something like Commander, like older formats, right? And maybe you're not getting a lot of use out of it in Standard or uh, yeah. Pioneer or anything, but it'd be interesting. Maybe, like maybe there is something that's really good. Who knows? Well, it, it applies on each turn, right? So it could potentially get you four mana in a turn cycle which is appealing. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, it, it, one thing I'll note is that it doesn't, a lot of times these things, when you do cost reduction, it can't be reduced to less than one. Yeah. So less this, you go all the way to zero. Yep. So uh, interesting. In, interesting card for sure. Again, I will say I love that this is the discussion we have around Planeswalkers now. We start having to think, okay, where can we slot this? It's not yes. just, oh, I'll play this Planeswalker and it'll be incredible always. Yep. So I, I also like that, I, I'm, maybe this is just like how my brain is working now, but I'm just like picturing... All right, like good value creatures, like things that can block pretty well. And then you have a mid-range Planeswalker at the top end that like kind of protects itself maybe, but does some card advantage stuff and like helps you build to an end game. It's yeah. like that. that's kind of what I want to do with Planeswalkers. And I think that's why my Agreed. brain is just like bringing me there, even if it might not be the best home. But No, I, I agree with you entirely. It's uh, too bad that plan will never beat a whole brick or horror under any circumstances. That but. is definitely true. Uh, but both these are blue. So we'll play them with Hullbreaker Horror. We've solved the problem. Yeah. Here we go. The Wandering Emperor. Two dub dub legendary planeswalker. Three starting loyalty has flash. And as long as this entered the battlefield this turn, you may activate her loyalty abilities anytime you could cast an instant. Plus one. Put a plus one plus one counter on up to one target creature. It gains first strike until end of turn. Minus one. Create a two two white samurai creature token with vigilance. Minus two, exile target, tapped creature, you gain two life. So, no ultimate, but flash, instant, speed, planeswalker, like maybe a surprise, but probably not for four mana. Who knows? Well, you get to do that thing where it's like, you get to do the bluffing thing, right? It's like when Settle the Wilds was in the, the format, or wreckage. Settle the Wreckage was in the format. It. It, you have to always think about it when you're facing four open mana. This is a little bit different to play around. You just be like, okay, remove my creature, fine. It's not like you're going to hold it back from combat most of the time. But I mean, you might, right? If it's like a utility thing that's only like one or two power, maybe you don't attack. Uh, maybe. Or maybe you have like two small creatures and like a big creature and you're like, well, I'll just send in the small one so I don't lose the big one. And then instead they just memory deluge or whatever. Yeah. 
No, but I, I like the play patterns on this a lot. I like the idea of obviously the first thing to pop to mind is, oh, this is a removal spell. But the idea of being able to like minus one at end of turn for a surprise two to attacker is cool in terms of pressuring opposing planeswalkers and end game scenarios. And then it quickly converts into uh, some battlefield presence and they have vigilance. So starting a turn cycle with no battlefield presence, closing out with two, two, two vigilant blockers and a wandering emperor on the battlefield. Eh, that's, that's appealing. I, I think you'll find scenarios where that's like your best line. Actually, you know, what's cool is hmm. there's this interesting pinch where this is just assuming that you don't have any creatures is that they can't really attack with small stuff. Cause you just make a two, two. Mm-hmm. And if they attack with like a big thing, you just exile it. And yep. It means that you're probably going to get to on tap with it because there's a turn where they can't actually attack the planeswalker. Oh yeah, yeah, it, it's almost certainly going to your next turn alive unless you have very specific planeswalker focus removal, which mostly isn't what the format is about these days. So yeah, I, a lot of burn spells, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there, yeah. there's a pinch where it's like you can't necessarily get in with small stuff because they just make a 2-2, eat one of your creatures, and then have this planeswalker left over. You can't necessarily just go like, all right, attack with my big thing because that gets eaten too. So hmm. maybe this is interesting. No, I, I, again, interesting is the word we keep going to with these planeswalkers, yeah. which is perfect. That's where I want them to fall. It has and text. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm excited that they all get to do unique things that sort of fill holes and lead to interesting gameplay situations. That's the most I could ask for from a planeswalker. All three of these do that. And it's, again, another example of how many good designs there are just getting obscured by small missteps. Or seven, eight missteps. Or seven, eight missteps, yes. Seven mana missteps. Red Legendary Land. Yeah. Sakenzin, Origin of the Uprisers. Legendary Land, tap, at R, channel, 3R, Discard this, create two 1-1 colorless spirit creature tokens. They gain haste until end of turn. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control. I'm not saying this is a better Dwarven mine for those decks, but it is It is a card. That is true. Losing the mountain type is going to be a lot. In some scenarios, yes not, no. not in all of them. Yes in like no. the polymorph scenarios, it's great for sure. I, I think yes and no because like if you're playing you know, two copies of this or whatever – it means that you, between that and Dwarven Mine and just having like a, a high mana curve in some instances, it just means you could play like a lot of lands. And yeah. this is always going to be the last land you play, right? So yeah. maybe it's not that bad. If it does mess up your Dwarven Mines because your land light, obviously that's disastrous. But I don't know. I, I think it's probably fine and you can work around it in a lot of instances. But it also just gives you like consistency. It gives you two things for... Yes. Uh, creativity, which is yep. kind of nice in a lot of spots. So, uh, yeah, I, anytime something like this comes into the format, it it always matters for polymorph decks. It it just has to almost by default. Yeah, they'll they'll figure out a way. Yep. So that's interesting. It's not as like, oh wow, this is super widespread like the uh, Basaju is, but this is also probably going to be like a one of in a lot of decks. Whereas like, oh yeah, I just didn't realize that they could you know make two one ones in a turn and like that throws off the combat math or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, good point. I I would like, I I expect all of these to be ubiquitous. They are very low downside and you don't, if the, if the downside is almost non-existent, you don't need a huge upside, but what we've seen thus far, they seem pretty good. So. Yeah. Excited to see the rest of them for sure. 
Yep. Uh, excited to see the rest of the cards in the set too, because this is not a lot of cards and a lot of them are, are pretty interesting. And I know that we're kind of using interesting as like a downside or whatever, but I, I don't like, I'm already thinking like, Oh, you know, I could build a deck with like X, Y, Z or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's not like they're interesting, bad. It's that they're interesting medium plus, but usually that's good enough. Yeah. It's good enough to get some games and with them, be happy with them. Like I said, Nothing stands out to me as like redefining the format as of yet. I think there are still some large constraints on the format. And I I would be shocked to see any of these cards push through those constraints. But I, I will hopefully be proven wrong about that. And something will free us from the Holebreaker Horror Prison. I don't know, man. We got a one-drop monkey. We got a thing. Well, we have a few like artifacts businesses the the machiko thing i think is pretty good the saga mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe tesseret at the top end maybe those create enough pressure that Hullbreaker horror is not the ubiquitous win condition or whatever i i hope that's true uh one thing working against that is that we also banned faceless haven so basically every aggro deck also got slower that's and fine man because we wanted to play a sakenzin anyway uh true true i can't argue <laughs> with that it, it'll be fine i'm okay. sure good for us no uh Treasure Vault. Treasure Vault exists. Okay. Why, why are we doing that? Because it's an artifact land for Machikos and Tezzeret. Okay, sure. Who, who needs Faceless Haven when you have Tezzeret into Treasure Vault, right? Yeah, it sounds like we're doing almost exactly the same thing. It is It is exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Game! Good luck.